musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And before I go any further, I'd like to again thank those who have purchased a copy of one of my books or who made a direct donation to the salon to help with our expenses. Uh, I think that I've emailed a thank you uh, to those who uh, made direct donations or made a donation for my pay-what-you-can version of the Genesis Generation. But uh, since I know that there are uh, three people out there who purchased Kindle versions of my book, uh, I'll have to thank you this way because uh, Amazon doesn't let me know who you are. And uh, also I want to send a thank you to uh, the two people who uh, sent in a donation via snail mail, uh, including one uh, very generous donation all the way from Germany. Uh, Well, I simply can't thank all of you enough for uh, helping me to keep the fires burning here in the salon. And uh, speaking of fire... It is tonight that the man burns at the Burning Man Festival. I uh, actually tried to Skype in for the Palenque Norte lectures there last uh, Thursday, but apparently uh, the bandwidth is now at a serious premium on the playa. Uh, Even Bruce wasn't able to uh, squeak an email out to me that night. But uh, in any event, I'll be joining uh, thousands of others uh, online who couldn't make the burn in person. And by the time this podcast is posted on the net, I'll be watching the live video feed from the playa and uh, we'll be dancing at home watching the man burn. And maybe you'll be dancing at home like me tonight uh, as we watch the festivities from afar. Uh, Anyway, I I hope you're enjoying your night tonight. Now, uh, the talk that I'm going to play for you today was sent to me by my friend Nur, who was also one of the participants in the Esalen workshop that we've been listening to these past few weeks. And, uh, hey, thank you very much for your time and trouble in getting this recording to us here in the salon, Nur. Uh, We really appreciate your efforts. The recording itself is uh, an interview that Elizabeth Gipps did with Terrence McKenna at his home in mid-1985. And as far as I know, it hasn't been posted on the net before, but, uh, of course, I could be wrong about that. In any event, uh, we are all very fortunate in that uh, Elizabeth gave a copy of this recording to Nur, who in turn passed it along to the salon. As you're going to hear uh, in just a moment, uh, along with Elizabeth and Terrence is a man uh, who Elizabeth introduces right at the beginning of the recording, but I couldn't clearly make out his name. Uh, Maybe some of the fans of her radio program uh, of years ago, uh, the one that Elizabeth hosted for many years in Santa Cruz, will recognize who he is and uh, post some information about him in the comments section for this podcast, which, as you know, uh, you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. Now, uh, the reason I'm pointing him out right off the bat is that uh, he starts out by asking Terrence a question that uh, quite literally blew my mind. (laughs) It was uh, about something known as cauldron chemistry. Have you ever heard about that before? Well, I hadn't. So, uh, after previewing this recording, uh, right away I wrote to my friend and colleague John Hanna, who, to my mind, is one of the very few people around who might know about this topic. John uh, is my go-to guy to kind of help me sort the shit from the Shinola, so to speak. And uh, on more than one occasion, he has uh, corrected some false impressions that I've formed uh, about uh, several of the more esoteric topics that we come into contact with here in the salon. Uh, And right after we listen to this interview, I'll read John's response to my query. And uh, (laughs) it's a real classic reply. 
Uh, so how's that for getting you interested in what's to come? But I won't tease you any longer. Uh, I'll just play the recording and let you join me in a great big smile as the first question is asked. In his house, uh, we being Lou de Bourbon and Elizabeth, me, and uh, we're sitting in this incredible collection of books in a very beautiful home in a wonderful, magical spot near. Uh, is it Marin County? No, it's Sonoma this County. This is Sonoma Western County. Sonoma County. Far from Sonoma. Talking. So I, I will tape the conversation and... Um, and uh, if Terrence has special information that he'd like you all, you aware people of the United States to have, he'll let us have it. And we will mention the fact that he has a new book which is on cassette, and he'll talk some about that too and where it can be ordered. That's all. That'd be like a good introduction to everybody. Yeah, that sounds fun. Okay, here we go. Okay. Well, maybe I'll just uh, start off asking a couple of questions that have been on my mind. Uh, uh, fascination with the um, combination of uh, DMT and harmine and things of this nature. And um, what I'm interested in is, is those places or plants or animals or ways in which people can come um, close to or have historically come close to or have had, had access to DMT. And I remember you briefly mentioned uh, a process whereby, by combining rabbit lungs, say, and pig intestines, you could actually, in some way, create or obtain DMT. And I was wondering if you could go into a little more detail on how, how that could be done. Oh, I'm not. I don't. I'm not sure. Pig intestines is the second ingredient, but what you need is a source of tryptophan which is a common amino acid, and then rabbit lung, which uh, is uh, replete with an O-methylation enzyme, O-methyltransferase, and it will O-methylate the tryptamine into a psychoactive, which is just an example of uh, what's called cauldron chemistry, where you use animal enzymes to do chemical transformations. Another one that has been discussed in the literature is uh, using uh, the decarboxylation activity of enzymes in raw milk to decarboxylate the poison in Amanita muscaria, which is muscarine, to the hallucinogen, which is muscamole. And in Wasson's book on soma, he discusses the fact that the soma, whatever it was, was whipped together with milk curd and allowed to stand. And this was one of the major ar uh, arguments for identifying it as Amanita muscaria, because that would make it much more palatable and less toxic. But who knows how many of these things uh, exist, you know, because we have lost the lore of special uses for animal organs and that sort of thing. And that really is shamanic lore that we've lost touch with. Are, are you familiar with the um, um, the newt, the California newt, or the importance of the tetrodotoxin and the fugu? Perhaps uh, maybe you could go a little bit into the, the fish, uh, if you want, and, of course, the newt in that sense. The before, we, before we get into that much of the technical thing, I wonder if it's possible to tell people why we think this is important. 
Can, can, can we just discuss I mean, that why for a minute? Why, why, why is it important to track down these natural sources of the psychedelic experience? Yes. Well, it's important because the psychedelic experience is important in and of itself, but it's important to involve ourselves with these biological materials because the things which come out of the laboratory, of which there's a potentially unlimited number, uh, are not receiving the kind of uh, animal and human testing that they would if they were above-ground drugs. So uh, safety is really a concern of mine. And what I've been telling people recently is uh, that until there is animal and human data on a drug, it should probably be looked at very carefully. Uh, if you look at naturally occurring hallucinogens with a tradition of human use, you don't have to worry about that because, you, for instance, the mushrooms, we know that they were used in the mountains of Mexico for at least two millennia. Uh, ditto the morning glories in Mexico. So uh, in the absence of good scientific data about the effects of artificial hallucinogens, it's good to stick to the natural ones. And it also, and a more interesting interesting and kind of more um, philosophical case can be made if you accept the theory of Rupert Sheldrake of morphogenetic fields because you have to realize then that the morphogenetic field of a drug like psilocybin which has been in living systems perhaps 120 million years been used by human beings perhaps 20,000 years, what is its morphogenetic field going to be like contrasted to a drug made six weeks ago in the laboratory? It's the depth of these things. You see, the new drugs are empty. They haven't taken enough people yet to fill up. But what you see with something like... Uh, psilocybin or morning glory seeds or something like that is the accumulation of the experience of all the people who ever took these things. I mean, that's why you're reaching back into a human family spread out over millennia and actually being those shaman. You are those shaman or you are participating in the, the personality of the over-shaman, if you wish. So that is... Uh, <coughs> The basis for an ontological distinction between artificial and naturally occurring drugs of all types, but especially hallucinogens, which have this intellectual content. Gee, that's the best explanation of the uh, of a, a, a case for organic um, psychedelics that I've heard. Stephen said a long time ago when we were on the caravan twelve years ago, I guess, that we should stop using LSD because so many people had used it in such paranoid. Uh, circumstances that the vibrational rate was no longer such that you could know that you were going to have an ecstatic trip. And well, that is an intuitive understanding of what exactly what Sheldrake was saying. The reason I've been thinking about this recently was because I s was at a conference recently on psychedelics, a closed conference mostly for healthcare professionals, and there was a lot of talk about Adam MDMA. And uh, then someone asked the question, what is the LD50 of it? 
LD50 is uh, a fairly unpleasant concept, which is necessary to understand in pharmacology. The LD50 is the dose at which half the mice die, or half the dogs die, and all drugs are tested this way. And what you want with a drug is a drug with where the LD50 is hundreds or thousands of times more than the effective dose. For instance, uh, the effective dose of psilocybin is about 20 milligrams. The LD50 for psilocybin is uh, 375 milligrams per kilogram. So we're talking 30,000 milligrams for a 145-pound human being. The problem that emerged with Adam was that the LD50 is very close to the effective dose and that no human trials have ever been done. The effective dose of Adam is considered to be somewhere between 75 and 150 milligrams. Mm -hmm. The LD50 is considered to be 500 milligrams based on studies of dogs. Now, I'll, let me explain this so it doesn't sound too alarmist. Dogs are not good creatures to extrapolate to human beings. Uh, practice has shown that mice are much better, that, that the LD50 of mi in mice will be more generally close to the LD50 in primates, including man, than data on dogs or cats. Nevertheless, in the absence of any human data whatsoever about Adam, uh, it's very unnerving that the LD50 is so close to the effective dose. So immediately, the institution which was holding this conference, which probably would prefer to be anonymous, pledged $1,000 to study the problem. Someone at the conference pledged $1,000. And uh, <coughs> tests will begin with sophisticated human volunteers who will uh, clear their systems and then take it and then have massive... Uh, blood work done. This is the short-term human uh, data will come out of that. The long-term human data is beyond the financial capability of the underground. But you see, this is interesting, so let me take a moment because it's important for people. Um, there's only one drug in the world which is safe strangely enough. In other words, there's only one drug in the world that no one knows how much it takes to kill you. And that drug is LSD-25. And this is a very fortunate thing because people in the 1960s got into the habit. I remember Tim Leary said, when in doubt, double the dose. Completely reasonable advice for LSD. The problem is LSD is the only drug with such a benign profile so that uh, we can't carry the, the dose estimation habits that we formed on LSD into these new amphetamines like MDA, MDMA, Adam, Ecstasy, because uh, they are, it's well known among chemists that the, uh, uh, the cyclicized amphetamines are toxic. Mescaline is the most toxic of all natural hallucinogens. 
MDMA is four times as toxic as mescaline. So at this conference, we a, a great deal of, of thought was put into... There were people there who were so enthusiastic about the um, effects of Adam, the the psychological effects, that they felt that this was the greatest chance the underground had ever had to actually obtain a quasi-legal or legal status for a hallucinogen. The problem is this, uh, this uh, toxicological data makes it clear that it could never be legalized. And in fact, if Adam cured the common cold it would not be legalized if it has a uh, LD50 profile only four times the effective dose. So I had up until this time not uh, formulated, I had had a preference for botanical drugs, but I had not formulated what is the real difference, you know, and when you would argue with people that synthetics and, natu- and organic drugs were different, they could eventually argue you to the point where you just couldn't defend it because they seemed to be the same. But with Sheldrake, the notion of Sheldrake, that the morphogenetic field attends the compound, and the absence mainly of human data, I mean, uh, we went through a ketamine phase with moderate amounts of human data, although now I see in Science News last week there's fear that it depresses the immune system. In fact, it does depress the immune system. Well, leaving aside its uh, use in the underground, the worst thing an anesthetic can do is depress your immune system because you're going to have surgery and come out of surgery and be in a surgical recovery ward. You want your immune system to just be fully revved up. Now we have this problem, apparently, with Adam. And in fact, there has been one reported death at a dose of 390 milligrams. Um, Thanks for that information. It's really important to get out because there's so much enthusiasm about it. Well, I'm spending... I told Tom these things and he was floored. I'm sure he was. And we had a long talk about it and it's... We have to take responsibility, you know, the underground, because we can't have another drug scandal would finish uh, psychedelic research above and underground for the rest of this century. So uh, it's a problem with the people's uh, courage. I mean, let's contrast two drugs for a minute. Here we have psilocybin, effective at the 20 milligram dose, and uh, you would have to take, as I said, probably close to two and a half dried pounds of the mushrooms that are on sale in the Bay Area to approach the fatal dose. Nevertheless, if you take 40 milligrams of psilocybin, you will swear that you are at death's door, you know. You will swear that you are looking at the path to the bardo. And, uh, but with Adam, it's totally the feeling, the aura is that it's completely benign, even as you approach a fantastically dangerous dose. 
That, it is amazing because Adam puts you in the state of love even for itself. That's what happens. And you know, and I t- discussed this with Lou coming down, it seems to me that my experience with Adam is that I'm so much in love, <clears throat> in a state of love that it's dangerous in other ways because I accept too much. I accept things that I shouldn't really accept that aren't the best for That's me. Right. So it's uh, some boy. It's well, fascinating. See, so I've heard of people who essentially to become courageous enough to get really stoned take Adam ahead of it. In other words, people say, "Well, I take Adam, and then I take LSD an hour and a half later. Or I take psilocybin an hour and a half later." Well, I think that. These are, you know, in the absence of human data, this is all very chancy stuff. We have to realize that LSD was a God-sent, special, miraculous case. I mean, it was amazing to pharmacologists that it was so non-toxic. The CIA gave an elephant six grams and, you know, it laid down for three days and then it got up and shook its head and wandered off to look for something to eat. So, (laughs) but we must be more responsible. So I've actually formulated it down to a little test, which is if you are interested in the spiritual path utilizing hallucinogens, then the hallucinogen you use should be able to answer yes to two of the following three questions. Does it have a history of shamanic usage? Does it occur in the tissue of a plant or animal? And now let me think. You can't think of Ah. Does it bear a similarity to compounds that occur in our own brains? We're just discovering a lot of those compounds, though. We don't know them all yet. Well, but as I said, you have to be able to answer yes to To two two of three. So then... So LSD would actually pass two of those. That's right. The Eleusinian Mysteries, where it was utilized for thousands of years and... And it's occurrence And occurs in in, in the brain. Well, and also it occurs in In morning morning glories and ergotized rye and... uh, So... Yes. uh, And if we do that, I don't think we'll get into trouble. And I also want to make this clear. We will not be denying ourselves any dimension of importance. In other words, I notice people have the attitude that you have to take all drugs to know what's going on. And what I find is that you find out far more about what's going on if you take a few drugs at progressively more and more heroic doses. Uh, Also, and I invite uh, experimenters to try this, at the moment there is so much attention directed toward Adam that the morphogenetic field of Adam is so strong that if you will take psilocybin, you can request it to masquerade as Adam and it will immediately turn over and be Adam for you. So... (laughs) And I don't think Adam can do the same trick God. going the other way. <laughs> well, uh, do you mind if I talk? I, I mean, ahead, please do join the conversation. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you want to get more technical, but no, I no, want to I'm, save I'm, it a little bit. Sure, uh, well, that's all I want to say about Well, I, I've got some questions. Okay. Uh, uh, oh, God. What did you just say about psilocybin? Oh, that it would turn yes. over. I want. Could you run down for people? 
if I understand you correctly, Terrence, I, I understand that you believe, or it, it, the reality that the, the spore of psilocybin mushrooms are in are alien intelligence or intelligence from uh, other areas of the galaxy or universe. Would you tell us a little about that? Well. It's not a belief of mine. It's just a case, a case I make because I want to stretch the imaginations of evolutionary biologists and everybody else who's looking at the living kingdom. And it is certainly true that spores appear to be genetically engineered for space flight. They are a color, deep purple. I'm now talking about the spores of Stropheria cubensis. They're a deep purple color which absorbs UV. That's the color you would paint a spaceship. They uh, uh, survive best in conditions most like those of space. In other words, high vacuum, low temperature. They uh, are small enough that they could, through Brownian motion and then the formation of global electrical currents on their sur- forming on their surfaces high up in the atmosphere, actually percolate out into outer space, much the way, for instance, that the atmos- much of the atmosphere of Mars has drifted away over millions of years. And uh, I think that the experience... Well, that's basically a case for that they are a biological entity able to migrate between the stars by through utilizing convective flow and light pressure and that sort of thing. A more radical proposition based on the experience of psilocybin is that that organism is intelligent or, or that it is able to transfer information, that it is somehow a form of life which is able to communicate with us when it is uh, locating in our nervous systems, that it comes to its fullest flower in the organism of a higher animal, and that in that state it is there is the potential for an I-thou uh, exchange and phenomenologically, there's no question about this, that there is this I-thou exchange with psilocybin. Uh, but people can say, uh, you know, you can, a psychologist can say, well, it's an autonomous psychic component that has slipped out of the control of the ego and you're dialoguing with that or whatever. But I think when you've had the experience, uh, the overwhelming impression is that you are having a conversation with a very strange, very old, very different kind of organism. And uh, based on that, and as I say, these physical arguments about the survivability of the spore and its adaptability to the outer space environment, I want to suggest that space may be no barrier to the migration of forms of many forms of life, not just forms of life possessing spaceships, and that probably many times in the Earth's history, spores have drifted down and become part of things. And this is not a radical theory at all. Crick of Crick and Watson holds the same view and believes that probably the galaxy is a biome, the galaxy is a biological unit, and we are just coming to the level of scientific and cultural and awareness to recognize these things. 
And of course, I think this argument seems preposterous unless you have had the experience on fairly high doses of psilocybin of actually meeting this alien entity, which is an experience very different from the classical psychedelic experience established through the use of LSD and mescaline. Those seem to be largely explorations of human dimensions, psychoanalytic and the collective unconscious of Jung, dimensions of historical resonance and uh, and that sort of thing. But there was not the prevalence of the extraterrestrial theme that you get with the tryptamines, psilocybin and DMT especially. These seem to be ways of communicating with a nearby world of alien intelligence, which may or may not be space Based, it may be hyperdimensional, or it may be earth-based. These may be the elves and fairies of folklore. The human experience is so bounded by language, we don't realize how our scientific and linear expectations of the world hide from us the real complexity of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Well, oh, uh, do, you- do you have? Something you would like to say or ask or comment on? Um, How are we doing, Tom Weiss? No, go ahead. Okay. Uh, Didn't mean to stop. That's the all show right. I have. I have. <laughs> it was a great uh, a little. I, I have a question then. Uh, in the experience of ac- actual extraterrestrial intelligence embodied in form, which I've read uh, and heard you describe before. Uh, <clears throat> is there a is there a place where you go? I mean, asking a question in the psychedelic experience with psilocybin, at any rate, in DMT forms, where you go into the molecular form, uh, like, and then out another side that forms itself into forms that we're not familiar with here in our three D land. You actually go through the mandala, the molecular I mean? mandala. Well, yeah. I had never. Th- cognized it that way, but that's an interesting way to think of it. It's as though the molecule turns your mind through another dimension, and you see something which is co-present with reality, as it were, but between the spaces, sort of, and suddenly the phase shift occurs. I remember when I was a child, I had this toy, which was a a flat piece of paper with a uh, circus cage printed on it. And when you moved the bars one way, there was a zebra in the cage. When you slid the bars the other way and covered all the parts of the zebra, a tiger was revealed. And this is uh, something about the nature of reality, that there seems to be at least one other continuum co-present. And this is why our folklore is uh, haunted by elves, genies, jinns, afrites, demons, uh, all these curious creatures of folklore, which, you know, wouldn't be there if there was not some experiential basis for them. It's just that we have crowded into cities and then crowded into condominiums, and we don't experience what goes on with the single person in vast wilderness, in a life, lived based on experience of the present at hand rather than vast abstract systems of explanation dictated by science and government and that sort of thing.
Would you would you like to comment at all on uh, uh, what you think the psychedelic experience is, with your knowledge of the chemistry of the plants and uh, so forth, and of the physiology of the body and the kind of experiences you've had? Do you have any idea what it is? What what is it? Well, I'll tell you what I think it is, but it's not really based on physiology or pharmacology. It's based on carefully looking at the experience. Plato said time is the moving image of eternity. And I think that what these psychedelics do is they actually do connect you to the whole circle. You stand outside of the moment from which you embarked on your psychedelic experience and you see eternity like a vast landscape deployed in front of you. So what I think psychedelics are is they're about time and they somehow make all time co-present and how this is possible and why it's possible, I don't know. But I think perhaps this is what the myth of the fall is about, that what man's fall is is really the fall into time, the time of a fading past, an unknown future, and a uh, very intense but very small area where things are going on called the present. There is some way in which that can be stepped out of, and it's not... It's not uh, an either-or situation. We are all, to some degree, in time, and we are all, to some degree, in eternity. And to the degree that we are in eternity, we behave correctly and have right activity and right perception. And these psychedelics enhance this involvement with the totality of everything. That's why it is not naive to suggest that issues like the nuclear gridlock and all these uh, other terminal problems that we have could be overcome if people would, by any means, try to come into attunement with the notion of unity in time and space of the species and the planet and the solar system and and I think this is the the evolving core idea which will either save us or the absence of its evolution will be our ruin the idea of unity and interrelatedness. I, I would like to suggest that it's possible that both things are happening that there is a universe where it's unraveling and one where it's People already won, and wasn't it? I'm, I mean, wasn't it you who, uh, Robert Anton Wilson? I know has talked about it. Some uh, suggest that the future is already it's pulling us towards it. I and I like right. that. And the, you talked about twelve twelve as a step over point. I've told 2012. everybody twenty twelve. Right. Yeah, and I told everybody that. And and a few days ago, somebody told me that the Mayan. Uh, fifth wheel, which we're on now, ends in, twel- in 2011, which it, I didn't know. Until it actually ends in 2012. It ends on the 21st of December, 2012, just 30 days after the date that I picked from all the work we did with the I Ching. Yes, somehow... What, what did you do? What, what, how did you do that? Do you mind running it down really... I, ca- I can't understand your book. I just can't understand <laughs> it. And I'm so uh, Ching, you know. But, yeah... The apocalypse is the millennium, and uh, the psychedelics move you into the future. 
we are all occupying different places in historical time. I mean, some of us are completely uncivilized Neanderthals. I mean, and some of us are very uptight 18th century sort of people interested in the social contract and the obligations of class and party and and some of us are uh, future people and this is the whole you don't have to wait for society to move into the future you can just make it happen around you and if everyone did that we could leap a thousand years into the future. I try to tell people that. That's one of the things that I say when people come on, oh, well, are we going to make it through the nuclear thing and stuff? And I say, listen, man, I've visited the future. I know there's a future. I don't know whether there's one for you, but I'm sure there's one for me because I've seen myself in it, right? And I keep coming back, and you keep coming back, and we all keep coming back. I is. Uh, because we've got a whole this great thing and we want everybody to share it. But we have a few little things we can work out ourselves on the way. <laughs> yes, well, <laughs> by everybody by example. I think that the whole thing, the crux of the whole psychedelic issue is that it, uh, it accentuates personal responsibility by making people take their own experiences seriously. People completely undervalue themselves. They think that they are spectators to life. They think that the great scientific breakthroughs, the great works of art, the great political upheavals will all be brought to them on the tube and explained by Newsweek. They don't realize that all of that is illusion and that what is central is the immediacy of personal experience and that if you work with that, you can just leave history and move off sideways from it and become your own Magellan. This is what people are doing in their living rooms, taking psilocybin in darkness late at night. They are the Columbuses of the new world of the human, of the human spirit. And uh, by taking responsibility, by abandoning the myth of... Um, that science, government, the military, and the churches are the forces which make culture. And just realizing culture is what we're doing at this very moment. The evolution of historical thought is what we're doing at this very moment. Maybe uh, before, I have one more thing, and then I think that you all ought to get a little technical before you have to go, but uh, I, I always like to ask people if there's something I haven't Past that they feel people ought to hear right now at this as you know this place in the infinity sign. No, I'm very tricky. I unburdened myself early That's on of I what think. I wanted to say, what I thought should let, be gotten. Let, out. Let's talk about just for a few minutes about your book, uh, your cassette book, oh, and right. that, and where people can order. What's in it? What's it about? Okay, well, it's a a book. Called, I wrote a book called True Hallucinations, which was the story behind the invisible landscape, the story of an amazing expedition to the Amazon in the early 70s in which we met the saucers, or at least I never wanted to meet them more closely than that, and discovered the mushroom which we brought back, which we wrote our book about, and Basically, it's just the wildest experience I've ever had or ever heard of. Uh, read onto eight cassettes as a nine and a half hour 
talking book with wonderful uh, special effects and musical backgrounding and that sort of thing. Well, that, that gave us uh, a concise thing here before they started making too much noise, which pounding. was really great. So, Lou, I know, has a lot of questions, and before we break up, it would be neat to hear you all. I, I can tape or not tape. I think you well, probably like Thank him. you, first of all, Liz. I think people like you are really the shock troops of the New Order because the whole thing that we're all doing is information, and the radio is uh, very, very important. I know. That's why I've got to get it together to package this program and send it out around. To I want to send it to the um, to those spots in the United States that have enough aware population to enjoy it. I, I think there are probably 30 to 50 of them anyway. Well, you may so. get better, but you're just fine the way you are. Oh, yeah. Well, that's <laughs> fine. I know. It's an all-win situation. <laughs> So, um, I, did you want to go back to where you were talking about, because that led us into why organic stuff. We were talking about... Oh, we were talking about cauldron chemistry. and, and alchemy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Da -da -da. Well, there are many, uh, an interesting thing to think about in regard to shamanism and all that is that there may be many situations where natural products can be combined to make a powerful hallucinogen where the components themselves are not. The most obvious known example of that is ayahuasca in the Amazon where DMT in Socotria viridis is potentiated by taking MAO inhibiting harmine from Banisteriopsis capi. But uh, there may be m many potentials for these kinds of things. For instance, uh, why were the druids so interested in mistletoe? Let's look at the chemistry of mistletoe and try to imagine ways in which mistletoe might be brought in that direction. The Arundodonex case is another one. The Chinese, many of the mushrooms in the Chinese pharmacopoeia could be looked at as well. Uh, Ayurvedic medicine, there are traces of combinatory hallucinogens. So this is actually an area where not a lot of work has been done. And in fact, generally, synergies have not been studied. Synergies are a situation where two compounds are put together to get an effect. And even, uh, even pharmaceutically and medically, the synergies that occur with various drugs have not, not been well studied. The, um, there, there were a few areas that uh, I spent some time thinking about. One of the most the, is the... Uh, what I call lower life form biochemical conversion processes or um, uh, ways in which things are transmitted perhaps from termites through termitomyces through, through uh, tool making behavior and, and chimpanzees uh, through that this transfer of information occurs and continues to occur and so that each uh, organism, perhaps, in its combination, the flies which are stupefied by muscaria as it decays, are eaten by the frogs whose legs in turn are... And so there's a lore or a processing that goes on in that way as one form. The other is um, a chromopuncture, an area selectively, that the body is selectively sensitive to certain... Um, colors to certain um, chemicals in certain areas and that this is another area that isn't really understood or hasn't been looked into. No, you make and a very good point. The other would be olfactory intoxicants, that they, there's a critical um, 
um, timing and involvement, I think, that has to go on to, in order to optimize an experience. And I think the olfactory component is another one that needs to be um, considered. Pheromones are uh, aromatic compounds which uh, are message-bearing chemicals that uh, insects give off, but plants also give off pheromones. And in fact, the more it's looked into, the more it appears that everything is giving off pheromones. And, and the plainer nature of hallucinogens suggests that they may be, in some sense, natural hallucinogens, super pheromones. They are actually bearing, message-bearing compounds whose purpose is to communicate between one species and another or within a species. For instance, the language of insects is not a language of sound, but a language of chemical excretion. And uh, how complex this language is, we don't know because we can't uh, pierce into it. But I studied for a while under Dr. Ralph Audi, who was a great geographer and medical epidemiologist, and he suggested that hallucinogens should be looked upon as a subset of pheromones. And I know when you're in the Amazon, you just breathe this air which is laden with thousands of chemical messengers of all sorts that are setting the ambiance of the whole biosphere. And uh, this has not been looked at. It's not well understood. There was an amazing article written a few years ago by a man named Harry Weiner who wrote an article called External Chemical Messengers, ECM, he called them. And... uh, in the New York Journal of Medicine, and he outlined a whole theory of how this regulated species and interspecies relations. He talked about how when you walk into a room full of people, you get an immediate gestalt impression, which he felt was olfactory, that you were sensing the psychic conditions of everyone by taking a lung full of the message-laden chemicals that everybody was exuding. He talked about psychiatrists who would diagnose schizophrenia by smell. They would just walk over to the person and take a hit of their body odor and felt, you know, that, and and he even suggested that what perhaps uh, some forms of schizophrenia are is miscuing socially because your pheromone system is haywire, so you're giving off what can only be described as a weird vibe, and so people relate to you weirdly, and that makes you weirder, and it makes them weirder, and you get this feedback lock, and it's essentially because you're invisible chemical messenger computer is broken down. Um, uh, What I was thinking was if we could get back a little bit to the combination of the, uh, let's say, the tryptamine, the DMT, and the um, harmine, or those those combinations, and also to get to the fugu. I know very little about it, and it would be nice if, if you have some thoughts on the, on the chemistry of the fugu and the what is nude. The fugu? It's the um, a fish that's eaten in Japan. Oh. Yes, I don't know a- actually anything about that particular fish. I know that there are fish eaten off Norfolk Island, which is an island off the west coast of Australia. In fact, there's an amazing description of a trip 
in Hoffer and Osmond's book, Hallucinogens, uh, uh, this person, this happened in the early 60s, they, they saw a monument to the first landing on the moon and had all these super science fiction visions of the future that they had not expected to get high. It was an accidental. They had caught this fish, roasted it on the beach, and ate it. Uh, and in Hawaii, there are similar fish and about six species are implicated and I think in all cases DMT is the compound but not a lot of animal tissue contains utilizable amounts of hallucinogens for instance I don't think it's ever no hallucinogenic insect has ever been confirmed although there are persistent reports of a grub, a palm grub, an immature beetle form in Brazil, which is hallucinogenic, and uh, occasionally butterflies are mentioned as hallucinogenic, but it's never been confirmed. So this is an area where research needs to be done. When, uh, <clears throat> if one were to be able to make, say, DMT from the rabbit lungs and are able to obtain the uh, hamine from the Russian thistle or the other plants. Uh, how would one proceed in terms of combining these uh, in the most effective way? Well, you want a, a you want MAO inhibition, so you have to take an effective dose of the MAO inhibitor, and then uh, the DMT is usually potentiated at a dose lower than the effective dose without the MAO inhibitor, and probably since these things are degraded substantially in the gut, the most effective way of doing it would be to smoke it. Or sublingual absorption is also a direct route that avoids the degradation in the digestive system. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So, uh... Are we ready to start boiling up rabbit lungs and pig guts? <laughs> or do you think that we should stick to mushrooms? Personally, uh, since I don't like the thought of killing anything, uh, any animal for sure, I'll stick to the plants myself, uh, mainly cannabis I should add. Now as I mentioned earlier, when I first previewed this recording and it uh, started with that question about cauldron chemistry, I immediately uh, copied that section of the recording and sent it to John Hanna for a more professional opinion about the topic. And I received a really wonderful reply, which I'll read to you in just a moment. But in fairness to John, uh, after I told him that I'd be reading it in a podcast, he uh, suggested that maybe he should do a little more professional write-up after first consulting our mutual friend and psychedelic scholar par excellence, Kay Trout. However, uh, I think that John may have gone to Burning Man, uh, which is underway at this very moment, and uh, so he wasn't able to get his response back to me before leaving for the playa, probably because I uh, may have misled him by saying it would be several more weeks before I podcast this interview. However, uh, as it works out, I, I think his initial response was great, and uh, here's what he said. Lorenzo, I literally burst out laughing when I heard Terrence say, I'm not sure pig intestines is a second ingredient. <laughs> Thanks for that. I have no chemistry background, so anything I say on this topic should be considered within that framework. And he added a few little chuckles there. Terence's presentation of the DMT produced using rabbit lung 
is, uh, I suspect, a little off. He first says that you need the amino acid tryptophan. Later, he says that the rabbit lung will omethylate the tryptamine. Well, tryptophan is not the same thing as tryptamine. Also, I suspect that O-methylation would indicate that there is some oxygen present. So while Terence talks about O-methyltransferase, O-M-T, perhaps what he wanted to say was N-methyltransferase, N-M-T, with the N meaning that the substituent is connected to the nitrogen. I suspected that the experiment that he is attempting to refer to is this one. And uh, there John gave me a link to uh, a, a study that was titled The Biosynthesis of Dimethyltryptamine in Vivo. And I'll put that link on the program notes. He goes on, The other issue is that there are two types of NMT. One that methylates tryptamine into methyltryptamine, known as PIMT, and one that methylates methyltryptamine into dimethyltryptamine, known as SIMT. Terence makes the whole thing a bit worse via his comments about decarboxylating muscarine into muscimol. Not only because it is actually ibotenic acid that decarbolates into muscimol, but because if one were to extrapolate backwards from his comments about mixing the Amanita muscaria mushroom with milk to accomplish this, then one might think his earlier statements suggest that one simply stirs up a bunch of tryptophan or tryptamine with some lungs cut out of a rabbit and viola DMT. Considering that the original experiments, done with different chemicals and Terence mentions, were carried out by IV injection into living rabbits, I am not sure that it is correct to leave one with the impression that rabbit lung can be physically mixed with some other chemical to produce anything other than a messy blend of rabbit lung and some other chemical. But I could be wrong. Maybe the enzymatic action can be done in vitro. I honestly have no idea. Furthermore, I tend to interpret the comments by the guy speaking with Terence as being those made by a dude who is having trouble scoring DMT and who is looking for some way to mix together eye of newt and tongue of lizard and then stick that in his pipe and smoke it. Now, uh, even if one used the correct materials in living rabbits, the abstract of the article mentions that the peak DMT level was reached a minute after injecting the precursor. I've not read the article. I'll see if I can get a copy of it pulled and forward it to you if I do. Anyway, my guess would be that MAO in rabbits is going to break down any DMT pretty quickly. So what? You wait a minute, drain the animal of its blood, and then quickly extract, uh, mm, how much DMT? I suppose that one could dose the rabbit with an MAOI, wait until that took effect, then inject the N-methyltryptamine, wait 60 seconds, then kill the rabbit, and make a tasty Hassan Pefaraska. <laughs> These comments by Sasha, and uh, again he sends a link, uh, it's from Do Ask Dr. Shulgin on the Cognitive Liberty site. Uh, so I'll put that link in the program notes too, but John goes on. These comments by Sasha might lead one to believe that if rabbits were injected with methyltryptophan, that they could produce dimethyltryptophan. But, of course, Sasha points out that we have no idea of whether or not that chemical is active. So, you know, this is a typical Terence. A grain of truth, a dash of horseshit, and a nice portion of laughter as the appetizer. I forwarded this message to Trout, since I hate to be providing any sketchy information here myself, and I appreciate that Trout has a much better grasp on all this stuff than I do. So, hopefully he'll correct any errors that I have put forth. John. 
Now, uh, after that, we had a few other exchanges, including several with our friend Kay Trout, who added a whole bunch of highly technical information along with uh, references to several scholarly papers. But uh, I'll just add this one little snippet here. And by the way, uh, my pronunciation of all these chemical names is probably way off the mark, so uh, don't, <laughs> don't try to translate them uh, into uh, any real facts, okay? Trout starts, Hi, methylated tryptophans are fairly rare in nature, mainly in a few lagoons, suggesting a different set of enzymes is involved to methylate tryptophan than tryptamine. I believe we have just discussed much the same thing, me and what I just sent you below. I'll send a copy of that other email to Lorenzo as well. Yes, N-methylation is what Terence was trying to talk about. O-methylation is what makes 5-MeO from bufotamine. Terence was really sloppy in this talk. Later, KT. So, uh, now you know as much and uh, probably even more than I do about cauldron chemistry. I don't really know how relevant the topic actually is, but I truly love the phrase, cauldron chemistry. (laughs) For me, it brings up an image of uh, Terence wearing a monk's robe and a tall pointy hat while bent over a steaming cauldron of some weird and smelly gook. And uh, he has his certain silly grin on his face, of course. And, uh, in fact, since there are so many uh, Joe Rogan fans who are also fellow saloners, uh, maybe a few of you could ask Joe to do a show on cauldron chemistry for us. Uh, Maybe on Halloween. Uh, You know, while it's obviously a serious topic from one point of view, it uh, most certainly does lend itself to comedy as well. And uh, I'd really love to hear what Joe and his crew could come up with on the topic. Although I guess it would be uh, kind of hard to top Terence's straight-faced comment that he didn't think pig intestines <laughs> were part of the recipe. Uh, wouldn't it have been great to hear Terence and Sasha talk about this subject? Uh, because I'm sure that Sasha, with his uh, truly wonderful sense of humor, would have had us in stitches before Terence could even finish the uh, serious part of his rap. <laughs> but uh, I digress. Now, uh, another thing that I also think needs to be uh, clarified and followed up on is what Terence was saying about the LD50 for MDMA, or ecstasy. From what little I've been able to discover, the LD50 for humans is still unknown, but for mice, rats, and guinea pigs, I've found ranges from uh, 49 to 98 milligrams per kilogram, which uh, seems to indicate that the standard 120 milligram dose of MDMA that humans take should be well within reasonable safety limits. But uh, as scientists often tell us, uh, results can vary, so uh, be careful out there. These are uh, really powerful substances and can have long-term and serious consequences if they're abused. However, uh, Terence's statement that MDMA has an LD50 of only four times the effective dose seems to me uh, quite far off the mark. For a 150-pound human using the data from dead mice and erring on the safe side, Uh, Well, it's still over 25 times the effective dose, but only a complete idiot would want to test that limit, don't you you think? However, uh, it still was fun for me to hear Terrence pointing out the difference between synthetic substances and naturally occurring ones, coming down, of course, on the side of the natural ones. And I know that there are quite a few of our fellow saloners, like me, who from time to time were fortunate to be able to listen to Terence and Sasha Shulgin debating this issue. In fact, I can recall one lazy afternoon in Palenque when the two of them uh, went on about it, uh, each staunchly defending their positions. Oh, they went on for a couple of hours, I guess, until they kind of ran out of steam and called it a draw and then ended in a fit of laughter at how intense they'd both been. 
Also, I guess that I don't have to point this out to you, but when Terrence said that LSD-25 was the only drug with such a benign profile that its LD-50 wasn't known, he was uh, talking about the category of hallucinogens, which uh, by definition doesn't include the safest of all known psychoactive substances, cannabis. Uh, It can't be repeated often enough that never in the entire course of human history has anyone ever died from an overdose of cannabis. And uh, yet, of course, the U.S. government still claims that it is uh, right up there with crack and heroin as a dangerous substance. Obviously, uh, there is something much more to their prohibition of this plant than meets the eye, for uh, safety isn't even a factor. I really should also give you some more information about the amazing Elizabeth Gipps, who was responsible for creating this interview, but since I'm still recovering from a rather bad cold and my energy level isn't high enough yet to do that, uh, and to cover a couple of other topics that I want to touch on before we close today, uh, I'm just going to have to uh, move on, but uh, I do want to mention that a couple of years ago, a young man came up to me at a conference uh, that we were both attending and told me that he had a whole box full of recordings of the interviews that Elizabeth did for her Santa Cruz radio program. Uh, and he was going to send them to me to use here in the salon. Unfortunately, uh, we seem to have lost touch with one another. So, uh, hey, if you're out there somewhere and remember our conversation, I would very greatly appreciate the opportunity to play more of her work here in the salon, should you be able to get it to me. Well, uh, I'm going to have to sign off for now, as it's uh, once again getting really warm here in the salon, and I'm just not very productive in warm weather. Plus, uh, I'm getting a little more lazy every day. But uh, I need to let you know that it will be several weeks, uh, maybe even a month, before my next podcast. So I don't want you to get worried about things. Uh, I already have our next program planned, and I think you'll enjoy it, as it's another talk by Krishnamurti, who uh, we haven't heard here in the salon for quite a long time, and who is already a big favorite of many of our fellow saloners. Uh, You too, hopefully. Also, uh, until sometime after the 20th of September, I won't be uh, having any access to my email or Facebook mail either. Uh, From time to time, I may be able to uh, get online and approve a few comments that you make to our salon website, but that will be intermittent at best. So uh, don't give up on me if you haven't heard from me or had your comments approved. I'll eventually catch up uh, with the possible exception of email, uh, of course. And if uh, you and I have been in the middle of an email exchange, you'll have to remind me of where we are by uh, sending something later this month, because uh, right now there are over 300 unread emails in my inbox, and uh, that number will certainly grow before I return. So what I'll probably have to do is to just put all of my unread email to the side when I return and then start fresh, which means that... uh, You should probably hold off until the end of September if you want to contact me, because uh, otherwise it could get lost in the shuffle. Now, uh, i got to get packing, and uh, so for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.